we've got at the very moment when their credibility needs to be conserved, it's being squandered with these controversies as we now learn more and more about how they're operating. We have a minority rule court that is not just imposing minority rule, but is actually shrinking the ability to vote. John Roberts holds the gavel, but Clarence Thomas holds the power. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the Supreme Court, the law, the rule of law. I am Dahlia Lithwick, and these days I play journalism whack-a-mole covering some of those things for Slate, which I could not do without my jurisprudential wingman. Actually, I'm going to say commander-in-chief, Mark Joseph Stern, who is right here right now with me making a cameo appearance at the top of the show to talk about an exciting live event that we have coming up. Hi, Mark. Hi, Dahlia. Thank you so much for bringing me out from behind the paywall velvet rope. Uh, I think this event is going to be awesome. So far, we have Ellie Mistal and Jay Willis teed up to chat with us on stage. This is at 6th and I here in D.C. uh, at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are available now. I'm feeling like they're going to sell out. That's the vibe I'm getting from all the people on Twitter who are, you know, feverishly buying up these tickets and getting ready to scalp them just outside the door. So I say get in early. Get on your computer right now, buy these tickets, and we're going to have a ton of fun together talking about horrible things live. If this is your idea of fun, please join us on Wednesday, May 24th in Washington, D.C. for Happy Hour and a live taping of the show. You can find all the details at Slate.com slash live, and we will also link to it in our show notes. Slate Plus members, hey, you get a special discount on tickets. You can find member event discount codes by signing into Slate and visiting your account. Also, for our dear Slate Plus members only, Mark's going to be back later on in this show to talk about all things Supreme Court this week, corruption and disclosure and pork and E. Jean Carroll. If you'd like to have access to bonus segments from lots and lots of your favorite Slate shows, completely ad-free episodes, and if never ever hitting a paywall for any of Slate's articles sounds good to you, go to slate.com slash amicus plus to sign up. That's slate.com slash amicus plus. And thank you for supporting the work that we do. But first, Amicus is all live all the time right now, at least it feels that way. And this past week, we were in Seattle for the Crosscut Festival, where I had the immense pleasure of talking to NYU School of Law Brennan Center President Michael Waldman about his very soon-to-be-published book. It's called The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America, published by Simon & Schuster. It will be out on June 6th, but you can and really should pre order it right now. The book explains in very, very granular detail how we got here with this court, how we got to a moment where we feel utterly hamstrung by it, what's coming in June, what happened last June, and how we can all move forward in the months and years to come. It's a really good examination of the powers of the Supreme Court In a moment where the Supreme Court's dysfunction and the growing demand for reform are kind of top of mind in the public debate. So here is the show, live from Seattle. Hi. 
Welcome to Crosscut. It's lovely to be with you. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the Supreme Court, because as you may have heard, there's a little bit going on there. And our guest today is really just the perfect conversation partner for this moment. Uh, Michael Waldman is president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School. That's a nonpartisan law and policy institute that works to strengthen the systems of democracy and justice so they work for all. His forthcoming book is The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. It comes out in a few short weeks. And we are also recording this conversation as an amicus live show. So a shout out to our listeners whose earbuds are full of me and Michael. Michael's book is absolutely terrific. It is more timely, I think, than even you imagined. So it is really wonderful to be in conversation with you. It's great to be here. It's great to be with you. I learned so much from all your journalism and insight on this. I know everybody does. And, and there's a lot to talk about. There is a lot to talk about. So, so Michael, I think where I want to start is with some level setting. One of the things, and I know I had this problem in my book, that every day that it's at a printer printing out, there's 20 new news stories and you just keep wanting to pull it back and say, but Harlan Crow. But even with the fact that in some sense you didn't quite right to this exact second, your book is certainly a lengthy meditation on this moment we're in. In your introduction, one of the things you say is, quote, every day the court's power grab pushes us closer to a crisis, a catastrophic loss of institutional legitimacy. And I'm not sure when you wrote those words, you were fully prepared for Justice Gorsuch's land deals, Chief Justice Roberts' wife's job, Harlan Crow, more Harlan Crow, the super yacht Harlan Crow, the school fees Harlan Crow, and then in 2012, Leonard Leo, head of the Federalist Society, directed to have money paid to Ginny Thomas through Kellyanne Conway's polling group that somehow the group that paid the money had a brief before the court in Shelby County. Like, lots has happened even since you hit the end. And I wondered if you can talk a little bit about your whole first third of the book is about history and crises after Dred Scott, crises after Lochner. Where is this compared to those? This moment we're in with public confidence in the court in the tank, every day, a new revelation. This makes Bush v. Gore seem kind of sweet. But Bush v. Gore was at a time when people trusted the court and accepted the result and didn't think it was good necessarily, but didn't think it was intrinsically corrupt. And we're in a very different place. We're having this conversation as we're getting ready for the next big round of rulings. And the court's credibility is collapsing. It's at the lowest level it's been in public opinion polls ever recorded. There have been other times in the country's history, as you say, where the court has provoked so much controversy that it's changed politics. Most of the time, the Supreme Court kind of hugs the middle. It, it basically reflects whatever the consensus is or the political consensus of the dominant political forces. But a few times in the country's history, the Dred Scott ruling that helped propel Abraham Lincoln to the presidency and provoked the Civil War. The period in the early 20th century when the Supreme Court saw its role as being to stop government from protecting workers, protecting women. And the period of the Warren Court, where I like a lot of the rulings from the Warren Court, of course, but we are still living with the backlash. 
When the Supreme Court is seen as activist or extreme, it provokes a reaction, a backlash. And I think we're in the early days of that backlash. Even before we get to the sort of warp and woof of the backlash, because I am also trying to wrap my head as somebody who's been saying for years and years, nothing's going to happen, nothing's going to happen. It feels like materially that vibe has changed. I want you to do one other piece of table setting, which is so much of your book roots the kind of crisis of confidence in the court, not in these ethics problems. And I will talk in a minute about whether we can stop calling them ethics problems, but in the doctrine, in Dobbs, in Bruin, the gun case that came down uh, at the end of last year that pretty much expanded Heller in ways that were unthinkable a year ago, and in uh, the EPA uh, West Virginia case, I want you to connect for us, if you can, the sort of crisis of legitimacy around the decisions the court is making, and then this extracurricular stuff. You know, in your book, you talk about the shadow docket, you talk about the leak in Dobbs, and now we've got all this judicial conduct. Are these two separate crises and the public is conflating them, or are they related in some way that we could usefully frame so that we can talk about how to fix it? I think they're all part of the same crisis. Uh, we now have a court that has been captured by a faction of a faction. Uh, one way to look at it is just as an empirical matter, not a partisan matter. Democrats won the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. But Republican presidents appointed six of the nine justices. It is now a supermajority of extreme conservatives who are working hand in glove, both in how they got there and how they rule with the Federalist Society and with a very intensely political operation designed to get exactly the results we're seeing from the court. You're right that part of that is the ethics or the corruption that we see, but part of it is the way they rule. In, in, the, in June of last year, in three rulings in the last three big days of the term, they, this supermajority crammed decades of social change into three days. The Bruin case, which was by far the most radical Second Amendment decision in the country's history. Dobbs, which of course, as we know, overturned Roe v. Wade, overturned the right to reproductive freedom in the Constitution, but really threatened all the other privacy rights. And then a case called West Virginia versus EPA, where the justices made clear that they were going to put at risk all the other regulatory actions that government would do. And it's not just that these were big rulings, but the way the court said it was doing the rulings is really extreme. And I think people don't really realize just how different it is from how the Supreme Court has ruled before on cases. Never before has the Supreme Court said with such a clear and loud voice, originalism is how we make our decisions. The only thing that matters now in 2023 is what people thought in 1791 and specifically what the property owning white men of 1791 thought. That is a crazy way to run a country. And that is where we now are with these rulings. So one of the problems that I think folks have, and this is really manifest again in your historical section in the book, is that we like to tell a story that sort of starts the historical clock at the Warren Court, that pretends that the sort of years before, the centuries before of sort of revanchist, as you said, a, a deliberately created institution that was a minority rule institution that was deliberately constructed to preserve white male power and prerogatives, that was the court, kind of forever. And they had a good run 
in the 60s for like a minute. And yet we really fell in love, and I think this is a fundamental critique in your book of this rights revolution, you know, because we were getting Gideon versus Wainwright, and we were getting uh, Griswold, and we were getting all these liberty-affording cases, and so we fell in love with the Supreme Court as this sort of arbiter of justice and liberty, and long after, I mean, I think it's worth saying, Abe Fortas was the last time, right, we had a, a, a court where, where a, a Democrat had put, you know, the majority of the justices on. So, so this story ended decades ago, functionally. It was certainly over by Citizens United. And yet, we're only now waking up to the reality that, like, huh, this is actually the most conservative Supreme Court since Lochner. It didn't really start with Mitch McConnell. It's been going back a long time, but it's a sort of a hangover from this brief period where, for just a few years, the Supreme Court was ahead of the country as opposed to a force to stop positive change. And far more frequently, it either didn't do much or was an aggressively, um, an aggressively reactionary force throughout the country's history. And, uh, it's a really fascinating, maybe generational fact that until a few years ago, public opinion polls showed that Democrats had more faith in the Supreme Court than Republicans, that progressives, until just a couple of years ago, thought the court was potentially on their side. And I, I think some of that is because of the Obergefell case, which affirmed marriage equality, or the fact that it didn't strike down the Affordable Care Act, though it shouldn't have been a close call. But some of it is a hangover from great rulings of the past that people still revere. And I think finally what's happened is we're seeing things as they are. Liberals and progressives have lost the illusion about the court and understand it's a political institution. It's a governmental body. These are governmental officials. They're not members of the clergy, all of which ties in as well to the kind of noise heading to the end of this year's term and last year's too. These are the months when they're writing the opinions and they have this oracular silence where we're supposed to sit and wait what they say. Last term, there was the leak of the Dobbs ruling. They all started attacking each other in public. And we first began learning in real detail about Jenny Thomas being part of the effort to overthrow free and fair elections. And this year, we've got at the very moment when their credibility needs to be conserved, it's being squandered with these controversies as we now learn more and more about how they're operating. We're going to take a moment to hear from some of our sponsors. More now, live from the Crosscut Festival in Seattle with the Brennan Center's Michael Waldman. I think you think about the court as sort of, and governance generally in democracy as a system of structure. So I'm going to ask you the only kind of structural question that I think people probably have which is at least the way I learned it in Schoolhouse Rock. You know, there's three branches, and they're meant to check each other. And this decision to kind of keep your hands off the court, that nobody can regulate the court, that Congress can't do anything, the president can't do anything, is absolutely the water we are swimming in. And I think you had the same reaction that I did post-Dobbs, which is this kind of cri de coeur of... This is terrible. I wish there were something that somebody could do somewhere. I guess we'll just live with this monarchic court and hopefully our great-grandchildren will bounce back. And one of the things that I'm reminded of reading your book is that it hasn't always been thus, that both the executive branch and the Congress have actually manifestly 
exerted control over the court historically, and that, in fact, and we can talk about the ousting of Abe Fortas in a minute, but the court itself took control of the court's reputational interests. So how did we get to this moment of this sort of weird learned helplessness, Michael, where we're all just sitting around waiting for either the court to fix itself, which I'm not confident is going to happen, or for what? Something magical to happen from the sky. We have to disenthrall ourselves, as Lincoln would have said. I mean, when you look back at the history of the country, the idea that the Supreme Court was superior to the other branches was very controversial, and people didn't accept it, and they pushed back. You mentioned Dred Scott. That was the ruling in 1857, where the court said, we're going to, quote, solve the problem of slavery, or really the agitation over slavery, and struck down the Missouri Compromise and said that you Congress could not prohibit slavery anywhere in the country. It's worth noting, this was the first really big Supreme Court opinion to leak. It actually leaked to the president, who sort of hinted at it in his inaugural. There was such a public response to that, it led to the rise of the Republican Party. It led to Lincoln becoming president. In his inaugural address, he said, we can't just accept the Supreme Court's view of what the Constitution means. As he was about to be sworn in by Chief Justice Taney, who was the guy who wrote that terrible opinion. The fight over the court was a dominant fight. It helped reshape the country. Same thing in the early 20th century. We, we know about FDR uh, when the New Deal was on the line and the Supreme Court was very conservative and was striking down the New Deal. That went back decades. Uh, it's called the Lochner era, as you know, from one particularly notorious case. But at that point, at a time of industrialization uh, and massive social change, the Supreme Court said, our job is to st stop government from protecting people, from protecting the public, from protecting women, uh, worker safety, and that kind of thing. And it was a huge issue. I didn't realize until researching the book that the fabled 1912 presidential election, where Teddy Roosevelt ran against his successor, William Howard Taft and Woodrow Wilson and Eugene Debs. Teddy Roosevelt's main issue was the Supreme Court and even the Lochner case. And he had some kind of out there ideas. He thought it, they should have uh, ballot initiatives whenever the Supreme Court made a constitutional ruling. But people were debating it. It was the stuff of politics. And it changed the court. The court pulled back eventually. We know also that the Warren Court in a lot of ways, was the anomaly, and it shaped the moment we're in. The Supreme Court finally did something so noble, so morally necessary in Brown versus Board of Education, breaking the logjam and making clear what was wrong about segregation, and many other rulings that helped create the notion that we have universal rights nationwide, didn't depend on what state you lived in. And it was a really important moment, but it was very brief. It's also the case that when you look at things like civil rights, it wasn't just the court. It was really what was done by protesters in the streets or by Congress passing laws. But a lot of people came away thinking, oh, the way to go here, a lot of liberals came away thinking we need to regard the courts as the guardians of these rights. And they should be guardians, but they're not the only guardians. So it's interesting because you're saying another version of the thing that you said, which is we got so hyper-focused on like, yay, we won Obergefell, we won Whole Women's Health, that we saw that the 
all of the ground beneath us had changed, but we were sort of myopically focusing on these wins in the court. Um, you know, the other thing that I think is worth adding to the sort of layer cake we're building here is that Congress also has exerted massive control over the courts. And I'm thinking of, you know, Professor Steve Laddick at U UT Austin, who's been writing, you know, the, the Congress would make the justices ride circuit. They didn't want to ride ponies around and sleep in barns, but they had to. You know, Congress would strip them of, of jurisdiction, would give them jurisdiction, would take their pay away. Ch Congress changed the size of the court. So the idea that there's nothing Congress can do without usurping judicial independence in integrity is also a kind of enthrallment that we've succumbed to. And Congress has changed the size of the court. It's changed the jurisdiction of the court. The Constitution, when you look at it, the part about the Supreme Court is only one-tenth the size of the part devoted to Congress and the president. We're supposed to vest most of our authority in these democratically elected and accountable branches. And there are ways Congress even now can push back with legislation. You think of the Lilly Ledbetter case as an example where the Supreme Court said that Lilly Ledbetter could not bring a case for sexual discrimination in, in pay. And Congress just said, no, you read it wrong. Congress can work around it and states and state courts can do their thing. But ultimately, the most important thing that has to happen is we all have to understand we liberals have to fall out of love with the Supreme Court as the place to put their emotional energies. And that is something conservatives understood decades ago. So, so you know where I'm going next, which is what about John Roberts? What about that guy? We were told he was an institutionalist. We were told we saw the evidence in his decision in Dobbs and the ACA defections. This is a guy who puts the institution first. Why is he not doing the thing that Chief Justice Earl Warren did when Abe Fortas got in trouble for financial misconduct that compared to this Harlan Crow Leonard Leo stuff really, really looks like a, like a, a game of monopoly. Like this looks like nothing compared to what we're now seeing now millions and millions of dollars, school fees, you know, money directly going to, to Ginny Thomas's um, uh, political efforts. Why is John Roberts not doing the thing that Earl Warren did when he sat down with Justice Fortas and said, this is very bad for the court? You know, uh, I hope we don't have to wait for historians to tell us the answer to that. Roberts is, in some measure, an institutionalist. He does keep one eye on the credibility of the court with the public. I note in the book and in the work I do at the Brennan Center, not on everything. He has led the court to be aggressive as can be in what I would regard as striking down some basic tenets of American democracy in voting law and campaign finance law. But as a general matter, he really does pay attention to these things. But he's only one vote. We give these courts the name of the chief justice, the, the Roberts Court or the Berger Court. John Roberts holds the gavel, but Clarence Thomas holds the power. Roberts is only one vote of six, of nine, and he's part of sometimes four votes or five votes when you need a majority. And he still, one would assume, has the moral suasion to say as an institutional matter. But it also seems to be the case that the other conservative justices are kind of thumbing their nose at him. Clarence Thomas has been saying in public that we were a great place to work until John Roberts came along as chief justice. One of the things that's so unusual is they're all attacking each other in public now, again, at a moment when they're 
oracular silence is necessary to, to pretend that this is just being a judge and not being a political actor. So one last question on the oracular silence, because, you know, in the book, you note that there's this sort of transcendent moment where they build in the 1930s, by the way, the big temple, you know, on, on Capitol Hill at one first street. Until then, they were just like meeting downstairs, you know, a, across the street. And they build this sort of Grecian temple. And it's kind of ridiculous. But I'll tell you, it's kind of awesome to, you know, see the power of it. But this is my mea culpa question. And I, I would love a theory from you. And the mea culpa is every single revelation we have had about misconduct at the court, including the Dobbs leak, has not come from a Supreme Court reporter. It's come from an either an investigative reporter or a political reporter. And I am asking you, as a Supreme Court reporter who's been writing away, like, ooh, look at what happened to the dormant commerce class today. Oh, you know, as though that's really like my beat. Who is covering the Supreme Court as a political institution and is part of that sense of enthrallment the sense that, you know, we don't touch the court because they're made of magic and rainbows and unicorns and whatever they say goes and we cannot regulate them or even scrutinize them it seems to be coming from inside the house. It seems to be coming from the Supreme Court press corps. Well, I think there's an interesting analogy. During the period when we used to call the imperial presidency, when the presidency during the Cold War especially was so dominant, the White House reporters covered the White House, but the scandals were not exposed by the people in the White House press room. Think of Watergate. They were exposed by the city beat reporters or investigative reporters. And it's ultimately up to those who devote resources, the news media, which still are really important, the legacy news media organizations still have a lot to do with what we know and what we don't know, to understand, again, that the doctrine really does matter. And it echoes so loudly throughout the rest of the country and the other rulings by other courts, but that the Supreme Court needs to be covered as a political institution, as a governmental body, with individual people who either are doing a good job or not, or who are, who are potentially facing issues of uh, self-dealing and corruption. And I do hope that this moment is a bit of a turning point. But to me, even now, I completely agree that the Harlan Crow, Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas story is of a different caliber than all these other issues. And I'm still not sure it's broken through in the news media in a way that, that most people know about it. I mean, those of us who don't have super yachts, I think, are super invested. But um, I'm going to ask one last question that I think goes to the heart of the work you do at Brennan and also to the heart of the book, which is it is very hard, I think, to connect up both the ethics scandals and the stuff going on, the Dobbs leak, the extracurricular stuff as I'm describing it, and the shifts in doctrine that you are describing, and the democracy suppressive activity that is in some sense coming also from inside the house. And so I wondered if you would give us a beat on, you mentioned this, John Roberts has very much for decades been an architect of Citizens United, you know, voter suppression, Brnovich, Shelby County, that's his jam. But I think that we don't fully understand that when you get, I saw a statistic this morning that 87% of Americans would like background checks. And we got Bruin. You know, we know that 70 some percent of Americans want reproductive freedom much, much closer to what we saw in Roe and Casey. 
we got Dobbs. We have a minority rule court that is not just imposing minority rule, but is actually shrinking the ability to vote. And I would love it if you could give us just a moment of connecting the dots between not just voter suppression, but democracy subversion as it is playing out at the court, because I think that's the way to connect these 80% uh, uh, public will and the rulings that are coming up from the court. Yes, I certainly believe that we are in a great fight for the future of American democracy, nothing less. The stakes really are that high. We've had fights over these issues over the, over the decades, but there really is right now an anti-democratic force in the country, which we saw on January 6th, which we see in the election denier movement. It's playing out in the doctrine from the Supreme Court over the last 20 years, where it has knocked down with John Roberts's leadership, the voting rights laws, the campaign finance laws, with just as much zeal as any other active and aggressive uh, Supreme Court ever has. And it's almost a, a, a feedback loop with the changes in the states, the states where you have the most aggressive laws on abortion rights are the ones that are the most gerrymandered and with the harshest voter suppression laws and where democracy is at its weakest. We've seen just in recent months, not just people trying to make it harder for other people to vote, but state legislatures trying to take away the power from local prosecutors from holding political figures like Donald Trump accountable, entrenchment by political elites. And the Supreme Court, rather than breaking that cycle, reinforces it. And part of the consequence of this, especially, is when we've lost the notion that we have one set of rights universally throughout the country and one set of standards for democracy, that some states are heading in one direction and other states are heading in another. And to me, the big crisis over the long term, why I think this is going to continue to play out in increasingly intense ways politically, is the country sort of headed in one direction and the Supreme Court and the system it's uh, enshrining is headed in another. Um, fewer and fewer people own guns in this country. There are more guns, but fewer people have them. But now the Supreme Court has said you cannot have gun laws to protect public safety of the kind we've had up until now, unless, as they said, you cannot consider public safety when you're considering the Second Amendment right. You can only consider, quote, history and tradition. And that means if there was a gun law on the books in 1791, then we can have it now. Same thing on reproductive rights and same thing on environmental protection and climate change and all these other things. A political question is, will people understand that this isn't just some atmospheric drift, but an intense, hard-fought political battle happening in this institution? It's not clear yet, but the results of recent elections suggest that at least when it comes to abortion rights, people understand it. Yeah, I, I've been heartened uh, both to see, you know, all those ballot initiatives in the midterms that sort of reinforce that we can do reproductive freedom at the state level. But there's a foot race going on. We now see Ohio that says, oh, you want to get it on the ballot? We're going to make it harder to put it on the ballot. It's a version of what you're describing, which is state legislatures, state Supreme Courts saying, oh, when Justice Alito said, if you don't like it, vote, what we meant was, if you don't like it, we'll take away your right to vote. And that's a structural problem. And, you know, and we've discussed this, state courts and state constitutions are an independent source of protecting rights and promoting equality in our country. Lots of people don't realize, but 49 of the 50 
state constitutions have stronger protections for voting rights than the U.S. Constitution does. But state courts have not interpreted it that way. They've always said, oh, well, you know, whatever the feds do, that's what we'll do. Part of what we all have to do, I would say, is to persuade these state courts to step up, um, detach from this very ideological approach taken by the Supreme Court. Um, but I, w- I would go back to the kind of the last year, two really big things made me think that the backlash is real and that the response is real. One is the midterm elections generally. The Democrats said the issue, and Biden got a lot of grief for, for saying this at the end, that the issue was Dobbs and democracy. And people said, no, you should be talking about inflation and these other things. And the Democrats had the strongest midterm election performance of any party in control in the White House in decades. People made the connection. They saw these as evidence of extremism. And then the other thing was the Wisconsin Supreme Court election. That was, as you know, that was, most states uh, elect their Supreme Court justices. Whether that's a good thing or not is a different issue, but they do. And Wisconsin's a very evenly divided state. It is massively gerrymandered with a supermajority for Republicans, even though the electorate is always almost evenly split. But this election for a Supreme Court justice, in effect, became a referendum on Dobbs, but also more broadly, and on redistricting and on the direction of the courts. And it went from an even split to an 11-point victory for the more liberal candidate. That's Political scientists will tell you that is an earthquake. That kind of shift does not happen in one year. So there, there's something big happening out there. Part of the goal has to be for people to understand what they're protesting against. We're going to take the briefest of breaks. Hey, Amicus listeners, I wanted to give you a heads up about an exciting upcoming live event that we're doing on Wednesday, May 24th. Mark Joseph Stern and I will be live in D.C. to talk about the end of the court term and how we should be covering it as journalists. We are putting together an amazing roster of special guests. And for those who'd like to go all out on the event, there's going to be a happy hour before where you can meet me and Mark and some of our colleagues from Slate. Get more information at slate.com slash live, and we will also link to it in the show notes. Would love to see you there. And Slate Plus members, you'll get a special discount on tickets. You can find member event discount codes by signing into Slate and visiting your account. And we are back to my conversation at the Crosscut Festival with Michael Waldman of the Brennan Center. Got two audience questions uh, that both ask about what should we do? Uh, Tom is saying, what is the most crucial step people should be taking uh, regarding court reform? And a related question is sort of orthogonal. What does it mean to fall out of love with the court? How is that actionable? So I think um, meat on the bones and very concrete action steps, particularly in a moment where you and I are urging people to talk seriously about reforming the court. What does that look like? So in, in specific terms, the two immediate fights right now where people can make their voices heard and where there's a lot happening, of course, one has to do with ethics. The Supreme Court is the only court in the United States that does not follow a binding ethics code. We've all learned this in recent weeks, I think more than we knew. Nobody is so wise that they should be the judge in their own case. And that's why you have these ethics codes. It wouldn't only have required the disclosure that 
Clarence Thomas, let's be clear, he didn't just get a gift here or there. As we were saying, ethics, that's like, can somebody buy you a cup of coffee? His lifestyle has been subsidized by this right-wing billionaire for two decades, who became his friend only after he joined the Supreme Court. And who, of course, as we now recently learned, uh, was paying for the tuition of his surrogate child and a lot of other things that go well beyond what other justices do, but well beyond what got Abe Fortas kicked off the court in 1969. Um, so first of all, Congress has the constitutional authority to pass a law requiring an ethics code if the Supreme Court won't do it itself. And one thing that was disturbing was all nine justices signed a letter saying, we're doing fine, we're doing it ourselves. And maybe there's a lot going on behind the scenes, but Congress has the power to do this, just as they have the power to pass ethics rules for the executive branch. It does not violate, I don't think, separation of powers. And Judge Ludig, who was an esteemed conservative judge, as you know, was almost appointed twice by George W. Bush to the Supreme Court. He wrote, uh, he wrote testimony recently saying, no, this is constitutional for Congress to do that. That's kind of the bare minimum. I also believe strongly that nobody should have this much public power for too long. So, uh, I think that it's time to push for 18 year term limits for Supreme Court justices. Um, Every other constitutional court of every other country has this. The state Supreme Courts have term limits or age requirements and that sort of thing. And it's to me, it's kind of rooted in an insight that George Washington had when he limited himself to two terms. Uh, it, 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 nobody should have that much power with a lifetime appointment for too long. Now, the question is, how do you do that? It certainly can be done by a constitutional amendment, which is hard, but but we've had constitutional amendments before. I think it can be done by statute as well. Congress can can say that Supreme Court justices, after a certain point, become what's called senior justices, and their role changes. They're still paid, but they don't have the same role as before. The Supreme Court has upheld that before, but the problem, of course, with doing it by statute is, who's going to decide whether it's constitutional? The Supreme Court. But it's a really interesting thing. I was a member of the Presidential Commission uh, on the Supreme Court that President Biden appointed. And, and, you know, these presidential commissions, it's a t sort of a time-honored thing. They're supposed to not do anything. <laughs> and, and in fact, we were specifically instructed not, not to reach to conclusions. That was the executive order setting it up. Mission accomplished. At mission, finally, a government agency that worked as intended. Having said that, it was actually really interesting. We heard from dozens of public witnesses, from left and right, and some said, I'm for court expansion. Some said, I'm against it. Some said, I'm for an ethics code. Some said, I'm against it. They all said pretty much, oh, I mean, I'm for term limits, of course. There is a consensus across left and right. And the polls show it unmistakably that this seems to make sense to people. Now, the, the truth is, of course, any push for it will instantly become political. But there is a public consensus for term limits, and I think it's going to happen. I don't know if it'll be a statute. I don't know if it'll be a constitutional amendment. But this is something people get in their gut is a good idea. And I wonder, we haven't talked much about it, but I think you mentioned it at the end of the book. We should just flag that in the next month and a half, the court's going to hand down a decision on affirmative action, the Indian Child Welfare Act. It's going to hand down a decision on voting rights, one of the most, I think, consequential voting rights decisions post Brnovich and Shelby. It's going to hand down a decision on loan forgiveness. I mean, there's nothing that isn't coming. And all that 
is going to, I think, kind of in addition to the Harlan Crow stuff, really uh, uh, goose the public's interest in thinking about reform. I'm going to ask you the question I'm sure you knew was coming. Somebody says, if Biden is elected next year, is there any chance he will expand the court? And I know the commission, really, really, that was a very tricky issue. But do you want to talk for a minute about adding seats? First off, I don't think Biden will. He's made it really clear this is not his line of thinking. And whether that's because he is rooted in his decades in in the Senate, whether he himself is an institutionalist or not, I don't think it's very likely that Biden will support that. I actually don't support it, at least not right now. It's tempting, of course, because there's been a packing of the courts by the Federalist Society. But I think, first of all, it's hard to see it not turning into a very fast retaliatory spiral. Democrats had five justices, then Republicans had five justices. Pretty soon you wouldn't be able to fit them in the courtroom. There is always, which could be good. Which could be good. It would, again, it would make it less of a, a College of Cardinals level of, of mysticism. I think it, it also does raise all kinds of questions in that context about making, you do want to make sure that the courts, if you're going to have courts, have independence. But I think m- more than anything else, for people who want this, there are real political dangers to it that I think it's important that progressives understand. Franklin Roosevelt, in 1937, had just won the biggest electoral victory any president ever had. He had 70 votes in the U.S. Senate. And they had just struck down the first half of the New Deal and were getting ready to strike down the second half of the New Deal. And even he found there was sort of an invisible line where suddenly there was this latent reverence for the court And it triggered it. And the action of trying to take the steps he took seemed illegitimate to so many people. We look at what has gone on in the streets of Tel Aviv, where people were reacting to what they perceived to be an attack on their own courts. So I think it's really important when we think about what kinds of reforms there are, that we understand that whatever we're pushing needs to look legitimate to people. Having said that, it is entirely legal and constitutional to change the number of justices on the Supreme Court. It has happened before. You don't need a constitutional amendment to do it. I think that what we, we even now have kind of put down the memory hole what happened to Merrick Garland's nomination. Again, Barack Obama, a year before the election, nominated somebody for the Supreme Court and Mitch McConnell and the Senate would not even consider it. That seat many Democrats believe was effectively stolen. And so I certainly understand the arguments for it. I think as a political matter, if nothing else, the obstacles are pretty significant to court expansion, though I know a lot of people don't agree with that. Yeah, I I may be 10 steps uh, off with you from that, chiefly because, and you mentioned this in your book, and maybe it's a good place to end, you know that it was terrible for FDR, the court packing plan. It was actually really good for the court. The court blinked. And maybe, you know, if we sort of parse out what we need right now, it's for the court to see some credible threat of something happening. But I agree with you. I think this ends in mutually assured destruction. I do also want to just note for people, this is existential. This feels very unlike anything I have seen in my 20-some years covering the court. But I think if Michael and I are urging anything, it's to remember that we all have skin in this game. This is not a monarchy. And... I think conservatives came away from the Warren court period understanding this was a matter for political organizing. One of the downsides of even a decision like Roe v. Wade is people who supported abortion rights 
did not have as much muscle memory of the organizing and political advocacy that was needed to protect that right. Now we have no choice. And this is going to be a great debate going forward. In a lot of ways, that's okay. If liberals fall out of love with the Supreme Court, if they understand as people, including Barack Obama and Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Frederick Douglass and Louis Brandeis and all the other people who fought over these issues before said, you know, the real answer is going to come from the public. It's not going to come from legal doctrines. That's a great thing if that is the consequence of this, but it's not going to end on the first day. It's going to be a fight we're engaged in for years to come. And the key first step is knowing that we're in that fight. Michael Waldman is president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU Law School, and what they do really every day tirelessly in the trenches is work to strengthen the systems of democracy and justice, and I cannot think of a better partner in this conversation. His forthcoming book, which every one of you should buy, you two amicus listeners, is The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. I want to thank uh, the team at Crosscut for inviting us here. I just cannot think of a more timely conversation. And I thank you so, so much, Michael, for really, really helping clarify the shape of the playing field. Thank you for having me. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much for your letters and for your questions. You can always keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Podcasts at Slate. And Ben Richmond is our senior director of operations. Thanks, and until next time, hang on in there, take good care.